Hey, Renter Retires, this is Adam Schrader here with another episode, joined as usual by the founder and CEO of Renter Retirement, Zach Lee Master. And you might notice if you're watching on YouTube that it's just the two of us, something that we don't get to nearly as often as we should. But Zach, uh, thanks for hanging out with me and me alone today. Adam, I always enjoy our conversations and sometimes, you know, in a blue moon, we'll uh, share something that I think the rest, rest of our audience and community would like to benefit from listening to. And so... It is good to, uh, you know, share some some of the information we're going to today. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start, um, you know, we talked a little bit about in previous episodes about how, you know, we're seeing benefits from like seller concessions starting to, to go away. And this is something we talked about a little bit earlier in the day today with our group about how we're entering into a somewhat different real estate environment than we've been in for the last, you know, year, I would say, maybe even a year and a half, where we're starting to see interest rates come down. We're still seeing a lack of inventory on the whole, and people are still wanting to sit on the sidelines and wait. And I think it was an important thing that we were discussing today is that moving forward the rest of this year, we're not seeing, and I, you were saying you were talking with a group of people, we're not seeing the the slowdown or the kind of an environment where buyers are going to start getting an upper hand again. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's important just to set the foundation of what, what we expect to happen over this next year and um, how you as the investor can think about how, how to apply this to your own investing goals. And so I'm, I'm a part of multiple communities and um, masterminds and things like this where we basically study market analytics um, on a regular basis and continue to look at market trends. And these are all you know, business owners and professional investors and market experts that uh, collaborate to share, you know, what, what is, what do we think is happening and what is, what have the current trends dictated um, and how that will impact us. And, and ultimately there's a few interesting stats that I uh, heard this morning that I think are very important to look at over the past, I would say about two years, really uh, almost two years, we went through this interesting interest rate environment, right? Because we came out of historically low interest rates like ever. Um, actually one, uh, well, I won't even go there, but basically it's ever interest rates, like the cost of money has been tracked back to like even Egyptian times. So we're talking about a significant period of time, just the cost of money. And this is the lowest during the COVID time. That was, you know, those historically low interest rates. They are, I know all the printing of money, these are historically low interest rates that, um, we have like the world has really never seen before historically. And so you just have to think about what, what that sets us up for, um, moving forward. And so now we're, now we're, we, we, as a government tends to be as reactive. And so we went to this really aggressive interest rate increase and, and things are starting to come down. But basically a lot of people anticipated that we would have market corrections because of that. And we just simply haven't seen that. And we all know that that's a big part of that is, is inventory shortages. And so here's a couple of important takeaways, I guess, from some stats that we've reviewed this morning is that um, one inventory has been has been low throughout this these past few years, and it is still low. In fact, right now, it's the lowest inventory availability we've seen in, in 40 years. Um, this point last year, we have 11 percent, it was like 10.94, 11 percent less inventory available nationwide than this point last year. And looking back at five years ago in 2019, we have 49.37, so almost 50% less inventory 
than we did five years ago. And so what that really shows us is that there's not as much inventory available. And that makes, that makes for a hard, it makes it hard to find viable investments. Now, what we've also seen is a slowdown in sales um, and transactions by about 30% over the past two years, especially over the past 12 months. And so really what this means is that the, the, the environment that we were previously in, it, it was a low inventory environment. It was a low buyer activity environment. There just wasn't a lot of real estate activity. That means some properties sat stagnant for a while. Um, and there wasn't a ton of investor activity. Well, now what we're seeing is investor activity is starting to pick up quite dramatically, which we still have historically low inventory availability, which overall puts us more into a seller's type of market. This is going to be reflective really about where we were doing during COVID period of time and even potentially worse, where there's just not a lot of inventory out there. That does not mean that there's not good deals. And obviously our goal here is to educate and encourage people to still find ways to make good investments. But long story short, what Adam is getting at and the point here is that what we've seen over the past couple of years where we've seen house prices staying stagnant, possibly lowering in some cases, as well as a lot of seller incentives and builder incentives, that's going away. So what we're anticipating and what we're already seeing is that home prices are starting to increase. We really focus a lot in new construction and look at that um, to pull a lot of stats and, and data points. And so new construction is starting to increase incrementally. About every 30 to 60 days, there is about a 5 to 6% increase um, in home prices on new construction. And so that means home prices are starting to go up. Investors are starting. We're seeing some institutional buyers come back in and starting to make, uh, make moves here as well. So there's more competition less buyer or less seller incentives um, and there's going to be price increases and so what this all boils down to and we anticipated this right as interest rates start to drop they already have dropped and they will continue to drop throughout 2024 is that there's just more competition it's more of a seller's market so what this means for you i, I think the takeaway as the investor is that you know there are still buying opportunities right at this very moment in time where yes interest rates have come down they're still a little bit higher relative to where they were in the past, but this is really a unique time where you can still take advantage of significant seller incentives and acquire inventory that's going to be more, much more expensive than you're acquiring it at today, even in a few months. You could always refinance your loan in the future if you want, um, but this is not a scenario where you buy a property today and anticipate it, anticipate it to be worth the same in six to 12 months. Prices are increasing nationwide. There's more buyer competition. It's a seller's market. My recommendation to people is to try to make action, take action steps right now. Don't wait till the end of the year when you need those tax incentives, like do it now and get into the property while you have the opportunity to still take advantage of those. So I know I was long winded Adam, but that's, that's my evaluation. What do you think? I always, I, I've been telling people a lot and I try to, to really press it home is when you look at your pro formas, we always talk about, you know, that's your year one projection and that's what people look at, but one of the things that I'm really pushing people towards is something that's on our website that's free for people right now. And that's the wealth calculator, because you can look at, you know, their performance right now with your interest rate, let's just say it's at 7%. That's year one, but you've got years two through 30 that just get ignored so much. So let's just say you buy a new build right now and year one, you get, I don't know, let's just say something 
low, 3% cash on cash on that property. You know, doesn't look great year one. Very true. But then you're in an area like we, when we talked to our Alabama new build team where they say, you know, historically they looked back at rents, what was it, five, 10 years, and they're raising their rents in most areas by at least 5% a year. You know, if you're raising your, let's just say you have a $2,000 rent, that's getting you $100 more a year, um, a month, every year. And you factor that out over, you know, if you've got a 10-year time horizon, you're looking at rent increases of, you know, $800, $1,000 over that time frame. You know, that your cash on cash at that point is not 3%. <laughs> I hate to I hate to break the math down for people, but, you know, years two through 30, there's a lot more time there than there is in just year one. So buying or holding off on buying because you're worried about current interest rates or current potential price fluctuations one way or another is just, it's really more short-sighted than I wish people would be. Well, uh, real estate is, it's a long game. You know, yeah. I think you bring up a valid point. Now we're always going to come in here and say, like, find a way, find a way to invest. Right. Yeah. But that's not just a sales hat on. Like we, I've been successful investing because I've found a way to invest yep. in properties every single year, regardless of where, you know, the current market is at and realized over time that time is your biggest advocate, right? You build wealth yep. in real estate over time. A lot of newer investors tend to focus just on a pro forma and the numbers there because that is a year one analysis. But that is in particular why we like the Southeast and new construction, especially because these are areas that are growth areas and you're not just buying it for, no one's buying a property to try to retire today off of the cash flow. That's unrealistic, right? You're you're looking yep. for an area where you can have strong growth, both in rents and appreciation and build wealth over time. And you just need to think about that. Time is your biggest advocate or adversary if you don't take action versus actually taking action. But you brought up the Alabama stuff. I think currently just, you know, a little pro tip, my recommendation, that's the best inventory. That's um, the area that I uh, invested in personally the most this past year. Previously, it was Southwest Florida, and I've shifted that to Alabama, buying more in Alabama because I do see a lot of opportunity there for multiple reasons. You know, one of the markets we really like is right outside of Huntsville, where the builder, we, we've looked back historically and they plan to continue increases price points on average annually between 14 to 16% every single year. And so you can pretty much anticipate, I mean, you don't, you don't bank on this, but I mean, what they are doing is increasing their forcing appreciation in the market. They are setting the market, right? Where you have a 14 to 16% appreciation per year, um, just buying in the right location because we know that Huntsville is a high demand area, uh, especially with newly built houses. And then there's some builders um, also in Alabama specifically that are offering very good incentives like the five and a half percent rate buy down where you're not paying any extra points. The builder is paying the points for you to five and a half percent on a 30 year fixed loan. That's, that's likely well below what interest rates will achieve this year, probably. Um, so that means that's a way where you can take advantage of those now to still have attractive interest rates. Just, just some things to think about. Um, but I've, it's certainly, when I was reviewing these statistics, it made me think like, because my big thing every year is like, okay, what, are we, what do we need to acquire? And this is just where we're at personally with our investing path, but how many properties do we need to acquire to wipe out our taxable income? That's, that's a big thing. And, um, I, I inevitably, like many people, you know, try to buy throughout the year, life gets busy. And then I'm in the scramble in Q4, right. Trying to close deals. And I'm, you know, behind the eight ball here and that's not a good position to be in. And so 
for me, I'm thinking like, let me be active, the most aggressive in Q1, because I think this is a really important time, Q1 and Q2 of 2024. Um, and Adam, I know that you have recently <laughs> shared some some exciting tax stuff with me. So we got to talk about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I also want to remind people, I mean, waiting until Q4, if you're in, if you're focusing on new construction can sometimes get tricky because uh, completion deadlines, completion dates aren't exactly a, uh, an exact science when it comes down to it. So sometimes when you get into that November timeframe, you know, even late October, the builder might say, it'll probably be done by the end of the year, but you never want to be hanging your hat on, uh, on that happening. But I found, um, you know, people call it the short-term uh, loophole whenever they talk about taxes. They talk about real estate professionals. Um, nobody had ever said anything to me about the S-Corp loophole. Um, I, I feel like this is something that I've never, I don't think I've ever heard anybody do this. I actually was on the phone with my CPA and he. I asked, I was like, how did you, you know, do this? Like, how did my income get so low? Like, y'all didn't register me as a as a real estate professional, did you? Because technically speaking with the number of properties we have and having property managers, my wife having a full-time job and the properties being in her name, the it's borderline whether or not we could qualify for it. So I was like, I don't want to take it. And he said, well, no, actually it's because your rental income and your S corp income are on the same line in the, on your taxes. So because of that, I'm now able to use my rental losses to uh, offset my income. It's uh, a That's great good. loophole that I'm, I'm, I then called up yesterday. I called up our cost seg guy and said, hey, uh, I'm going to send you some addresses. I need you to, to run me some numbers and tell me what I can do to, to save to wipe out this tax burden. So. And that is a, that is, uh, and you called me as well, Adam. Yeah, uh, very I excited. And I called you after him though. <laughs> and, and my response to you is like, Adam, I've been waiting for this phone call for years. You're just now doing this. So, um, no, I'm glad you found a way to figure it out and that it's just about understanding like what the options are. And this is a perfect example of marrying business with real estate investing. And guys, that is the recipe to, to wealth is to save because taxes, you've heard me say this a thousand times, taxes are the biggest liability and the highest expense. All of us will, will accrue over the course of our lives. Um, but if you can marry your business, so Adam operates as an S corp and is able to then, because of that, you know, take some of these accelerated depreciation from his properties to uh, really reduce um, his his taxable liability significantly. And Adam, hopefully, I'm not sharing too many personal details, but since you <laughs> since you bought some of these properties, you're looking at. I know you're always investing every single year, but a lot of the ones that you had bought previously, three or four years ago, um, especially the new construction ones, which have the highest depreciation value those you actually are still going to achieve a hundred percent bonus depreciation on um, because of when you put yep. those properties into service. So you can look back at previous properties you, you purchased and uh, really maximize the tax benefits on that. So that's, that's huge. Yep. That may change your investing strategy moving forward, Adam. I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't say may, I think you could just scratch that off and say, will um, at this point in time, I mean it, well, it depends. The, the strategy is still going to be continue buying and building the portfolio every year, but yeah, but I mean, if you're operating as a 1099 employee right now out there, um, it's worth at least talking to your CPA and saying, hey, and talking to your employer and saying, hey, instead of hiring me, could I form a, a company and then you employ my company to to do the same thing that I'm doing now? So if you're a 1099 employee out there, 
I'm not saying this as a tax professional. I'm just telling you what my CPA told me. It's definitely worth checking out. And if you look on the tax forms, it's right there. It says rental income, and then it mentions your S-Corp uh, income after that. And so it's, uh, it's potential out there. And if, and if you don't, if you're not operating um, an S-Corp now or, and you don't have the 1099 income, like if this is maybe something you could build into your strategic planning moving forward, um, is building a business where you're operating, you know, rental real estate and having additional income through to, to shelter some of that taxable liability. So, um, you know, these are all things that we try to educate our community on to apply to your specific situation. So yes, Adam and I are not accountants, but, uh, we certainly have great ones and we're happy to share those resources with you if you need those as well. Absolutely. So we talk a lot on this show about at the end of the show, people hear me say, if you have questions, email them to podcast at rentretirement.com. We have had some people send us questions and I wanted to just talk about a couple of them here. Now, one of them was uh, sent in by Adam Walker. This one is just the very, um, very basic real estate question is my house has appreciated fairly well and I'm considering selling. I have never sold a house before. Do I receive the full sell amount of the house or does some of that go to agents? How much can I expect to get of the sales price? Um, I just wanted to touch on this because, um, well, first off, he has my name, so I'm going to going to answer his question. Uh, Adam, depends how you sell it. Most likely you're not going to see a hundred percent. If you're selling to someone you don't know, you're probably, they're at least going to have an agent five to 6% is not coming back to you. Most likely if you're both using agents. Um, so just know that sometimes you can negotiate it lower, but most likely five to 6% isn't coming back to you. Yeah. It depends where you're at too. I mean, we just talked about moving into a seller's market. So if you've had properties that you're considering selling um, over the past couple of years, or if you've tried selling and you haven't, like maybe this year is is a crucial time to reconsider that um, as we move more aggressively into a seller's market with rate drops and the inventory shortages that we talked about. Um, so that might be something to consider. But also in a seller's market, sellers have the negotiation upper hand. You know, maybe you can have the buyer pay a lot of your closing costs. We may see a situation where people are bidding. Um, you know, more cash offers, sometimes bidding above the, the sales price, uh, where you can build in and, and cover some of those costs, but typical, I mean, you typically factor in about 6%, um, selling to, to agents that's all covered by the seller. And the other thing to be conscious of just on the tax side is that if it's been a rental property that you've held for over a year and you have significant capital gains, which would be at least at, at 20%, um, possibly higher than you know, you have, that's federal. You have to look at your state income, um, above that for, for that property, but you may be able to shelter some of that via 1031 exchange. For example, if you bought a property five years ago for $200,000 and you're selling it now for $300,000, then you potentially could have a hundred thousand dollars of capital gains exposure that you could roll into other investments and defer the capital gains. And we know that the kind of the goal is at least with a lot of investors building wealth over time is that you can perpetually uh, defer taxes where if you pass on your portfolio to your children or heirs or whatever, they get what's called a step-up basis where that depreciation is essentially forgiven. And guys, that's how you build generational wealth uh, investing in rental real estate. If it's a primary residence and you've lived in it two out of the past five years, you don't have any capital gains. Um, but if you haven't, or it's been a pure investment property, then, then certainly, you know, you want to think about that and start preparing ahead of time. I don't know how many people contact us and we're like, you know, my sales closing in three days, I need a 1031 exchange and like, we can still pull it off, <laughs> but it's not ideal. So, 
So it might add a little bit of stress into your life or worse. They call us and say, I'm closing in three days. I'm doing a 1031 exchange. And you go, oh, who's your intermediary? And they go, what, what's that? I'm like, well, first off, call this person and don't close in two days. Um, <laughs> I need to bump that back a little bit. Uh, so um, I want to get to our next question from Angelica. She said, uh, kind words first off. Hi, thank you for such an opportunity to ask questions. Love your podcast. A lot of helpful info. I would appreciate hearing about the Section 8 program, what needs to be done for it, and the pros and cons of having tenants with this program. Um, Zach, I don't know if you've had any Section 8 properties in your time, but I know I have. I mean, Zelika, the, the big thing about Section 8 program is it's government-assisted housing vouchers, so they are going to pay their portion. You know, they, they have some calculation where they say, you know, okay, you've got a $1,000 rent based on how much money your this person makes. You know, we're going to pay 900 they're going to pay 100 But they come in beforehand, and your house has to get approved to be in the Section 8 program. So they come in, they do a Section 8 inspection. You're probably going to have to put a little bit of money in because kind of like home inspectors, they always find something because they have to validate their job. And so they'll find something you probably need to put a little bit of money in to fix to make it eligible for Section 8. Your tenant moves in, and you are essentially guaranteed um, the rent from that. The pros are that you get that, you know, $900 or whatever, pretty much guaranteed month to month. Now your tenant could potentially not pay their hundred dollars if uh, something happened, but that $900 or whatever percent the section eight pays is guaranteed. I've had a lot of section eight properties and I, I still do have some Adam. Um, a lot of times people associate section eight with low income. And that certainly is true in a lot of cases. Um, for tenant demographics and also geographic locations being in lower income areas. But I, I want to set the stage here that you can have Section 8 tenants in really nice properties as well. It's all it, it's all very um, dependent on the location. Section 8 is, is mandated and, and ran by local government. Uh, and so it depends on the area. But the, the benefit with Section 8 is you potentially, as you mentioned, you could get guaranteed income um, and you can possibly even get above market rate in a lot of cases. Yeah. Oftentimes um, it is. So that's maybe something to consider. Don't just write off Section 8 because you've heard horror stories about it in the past. I would say in my personal experience, the biggest challenge is actually just dealing with the government because they're very slow. Like you may have a tenant move in and they get approved to Section 8 and you may not receive any rents for three months because the paperwork is still processing. Now they backdate that and send you a big check at the end of the three months. But it is it is a lot of loopholes to go through. They send inspectors out there. Like As you mentioned, there's always something to do um, on that. Um, but just make sure the biggest thing, my recommendation is if you're using property management, have property management that is familiar with working with other section eight tenants. If this is their first time going through it, it might be a logistical nightmare and maybe not the best fit. <laughs> yeah. And also just know that the, that inspection happens at least every other year. A lot of times they come once a year to just check and make sure that the house is still in good shape. The negatives of it are that your tenant isn't paying as much rent and you're your recourse against them if they do something to your property is pretty minimal. Um, the you know the threat is that you could potentially get them kicked off Section Eight if they, you know, violate it too much. But in terms of coming after them and getting a judgment for any damage they might cause, it's very difficult to actually get any from that. So some of my best some of my best tenants have been Section Eight and longest term tenants. So, but anyways. Yeah, just like cash pay, there's good and bad Section 8. There's good and bad cash pays. Uh, I want to go to our, our next question here from Patricia. 
She said, when I reach retirement age, would it be more financially advantageous to have fewer properties that are completely paid off or more properties that all have mortgages? What are the pros and cons I should consider? I'm approximately 15 years away from retirement and trying to decide whether to leverage my properties to buy more homes or pay off the ones I already have. Zach, what are your thoughts on this? If you're 15 years out to retirement, definitely I would um, talk about, you're, you're still in um, acquisition and building, portfolio building stage. Um, and I would I would encourage you to use leverage. Leverage is, is a very powerful tool, as you know, just running the math. Um, there's there's many benefits to using leverage. Kind of the general idea, and this is, this is different for each individual, but kind of the thought process is, you build the portfolio first, you maximize leverage, which has a ton of, you know, tax benefits and allows you to achieve a high return on investment, allows you to maximize time value of money, right? Because if you hold loans long enough, essentially you're paying the bank back with um, like today's dollars in the future that are worth less. So you're actually paying the bank back back with less money. A lot of people can't conceptualize that or run run the math on it, but it's, it's an important concept of like how you get ahead using leverage. I would say responsibly, but highly leveraged early on. And then likely as you near retirement age, it will probably be a situation where you start to have some of those properties paid off free and clear. You're less in the acquisition phase. You're more in the true retirement phase where, yeah, it's probably likely to have more properties free and clear, and that will increase your cash flow on each property. Um, and you can truly in, enjoy retirement, right? That's kind of, that's kind of the general trajectory that a lot of people follow. Um, I personally, Adam, will always use debt because I, <laughs> you know, I love how we can use debt strategically. Um, but I just know that, you know, the properties putting good debt in place as properties rents increase over time, especially over like a 15 year period, those properties are going to be cash flowing significantly more where, you know, if you have a fixed rate mortgage, um, your mortgage stays the same. So each individual setting, I mean, would you agree with that or? Yeah, I think it's important, especially to to consider after you know how many properties you're going to have, because you want to remember the fewer properties you have, the more one vacancy hits, and especially if you have paid off properties, because uh, if you have paid off properties, they're more likely to cover a higher percentage of it. Because you know, as opposed to one, you know, finance property being two fifty, your paid off might be a thousand, and then the next thing you know, if that thousand dollars goes away, how up a creek are you? Um, so I just, I always like to, the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, you acquire what you need to cash flow properly, and then you get a couple more to, to account for vacancies, you know, and then if you're happy in that situation, good. And then maybe you slowly pay them off over time, but you want to just be sure that one property doesn't equate to too much of a percentage of your take home, because that property is not always going to be performing at a hundred percent. And so when that one doesn't, what position are you in? So yeah. And eventually you don't want to run into a situation where, you know, like Zach was saying, constantly leveraging and buying, um, you know, if you get too high a cash flow without debt, you're paying taxes. And as we've discussed here on the show, we don't like paying taxes. Yeah. You, you bring up a good point, Adam, about, um, having a balanced and well-diversified portfolio. You know, you certainly wouldn't want to just own one or two properties and have those free and clear. And that's your entire retirement picture. But you also don't want to own, well, I don't know, depending on your situation, you want to have 100 houses across 20 different markets. That's that's a lot and and have all those leverage, right? But um, there's there's certainly an individual um, strategy that needs to come into play based on you, your goals, your timeline, your resources, et cetera. 
And one thing we work with people on is trying to reverse engineer that, right? You brought up the wealth tracker earlier, which is a free resource on our website that helps you project to the future. It helps you not only evaluate property performance on an individual basis, but also from a portfolio standpoint. And the whole reason we built that portfolio is to that, that calculator is to use for ourselves because there's nothing else out there where you could track a portfolio as a whole, at least not what I found, track a portfolio as a whole, but also project in the future. And so if you're like, hey, I want to retire in six years, I need to have $15,000 net cash flow um, every single month uh, in 15 years, then let's reverse engineer that and say, what do you need to be acquiring? What types of properties and how many do you need to be acquiring in these locations every single year to get you to that point? I think you, you build the goals and the plans and you reverse engineer it. Yep. Absolutely. So I hope that, uh, hope that helps Patricia when it comes to, uh, your portfolio. So, um, I think that's going to be about all the, the questions we covered for today. We have more that we will address in future episodes. And again, if you have any questions, uh, we will continue to add to this and don't forget to, uh, send that email to podcast at rent retirement.com. That's podcast at rent retirement.com. Zach, before we, uh, hit the road and wish everybody a, a good day. Anything else you want to cover? You know, we're, at least we're recording this in uh, January of 2024. And there are a lot of exciting things happening, guys. It's it's going to be a different market. We're, we're going to see a different market in six months. It's going to be a more challenging market. Um, of course, our job is to scour the, the nation to find the best investment opportunities and, and bring them to our community um, as we continue to build our own portfolio alongside you. But I think right now is a crucial time to set your goals and take action on them and make good investments that you can benefit and reap the benefits from, uh, you know, for years to come. Fantastic. Well, if you want to look at our inventory, if you want to schedule a call so we can talk to you about your investing journey, head on over to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. If you are looking to continue your education and learn more, you can check out the Rent to Retirement Academy while you're there. That's at renttoretirement.com as well. It's a big sign that says Academy. Click on that and you can find a lot of educational content that you can use to further your own journey. Uh, we always have you know, monthly webinars talking about a lot of different topics that will help you along the way. That's at renttoretirement.com. Really appreciate the time you spent educating yourselves today. We'll talk to you on the next episode.